Hi everyone, it's Raghu Marcus, and I'm here today with somebody who is making a return to mind rolling, Tanisara. And uh, today, uh, it's a solo outing because last time you were with your with your husband and your teaching partner, Kitsaro. That's correct. Yes, I think it was about a year ago that we took class. That's right, yeah. And uh, and what, of course, prompted me, not that I need any prompting with you, because I love hanging out with you, is this <laughs> new book, Time to Stand Up. And, yes, uh, indeed. <laughs> and it is yeah. a real call to action, by the way. No doubt about yeah. that. Uh, but let's, uh, let's quickly get into, I, I'd just like to really start with what prompted you, what inner uh, urging was there for you? Uh, I'm sure this just didn't happen, it's not happenstance in the moment. So what what were some of the uh, events, maybe even in your life and through your life, that uh, brought you to writing this book, which we'll, we'll obviously get into here? Um, yeah, it's... Um it's hard to say exactly one thing. I mean, first of all, the the um, the catalyst was I was invited to write it. First of all, by um, as part of the Sacred Activism series of North Atlantic Books, which is a publisher that operates out of Berkeley, um, under the this particular the Sacred Activism series is under the umbrella of the author and spiritual teacher Andrew Harvey, who has the Sacred Activism School. So um, I, this was a Buddhist contribution um, on that theme of engaged, you know, engaging um, our, our times from a spiritual perspective. Uh, so that was really a major catalyst, obviously, to get me going on the book. But I think before that, the themes in the book had been bubbling away for quite a long time. Because one of the, I mean, in some ways it's, to some degree, it's a critique of um, Buddhism in its ability to really respond to the very dangerous times that we're in, with, you know, or the, the, the inquiry into how Buddhism can respond um, by undertaking its own deep journey into its own shadow so that it could respond more fully. So that was one aspect, having been for four decades um, working with, within Buddhist structures, um, and also it was, um, I wanted to go back into the Buddha's life and look at examples of how the Buddha had been actually lived, not only as a realizer, but also as a, as, as a sacred activist himself, how he'd engaged his society and under, undertaking really radical changes, structural changes, and challenged the status quo of the time. Um, and then it also grew out of my own um, consideration about how the, what could the how could the Dharma speak to the issues of our time and throw some light on what's going on and offer some hope and way forward and way through these tremendously um, you know this this global crisis which I see is um, 
we're in the midst of that is the you know so the largest symptom of that is the um cat catastrophe of the climate of the climate situation. situation so all of those threads were sort of um there really in emerging the book but it, but it had to be written quite quickly um i didn't have a lot of time to write it and it and i have to say um it was hard for me to um feel that it was my book i mean i wrote it and it's in the themes in it um are very familiar for me and the inquiry in it and the depth inquiry in, into in into the heart of some of the issues in the book uh, obviously came through me but i felt it it sort of downloaded almost um and uh, unfolded in a very uh, fluid way mm. and it reads like that as well Thanks, thanks. But the, I think the critical thing here in this, which really got my attention, was the relationship and uh, of the feminine. Obviously, is the central theme in this book. Uh, certainly, infusing activism with spiritual truths. Uh, is the core, but the, as you call it, the domain of the, of the feminine and related to our current times and related to the traditional patriarchal um, hierarchy that uh, is, as you put it, slow to speak out in defense of the earth. And, uh, this isn't something that is talked about a lot, even by people who are very pro-environment, who, of course, know and understand what it is that we have been doing and what it is we are doing with uh, our planet. And uh, some of this may seem overly simplistic uh, in terms of the way that I'm expressing my delight, really about how you've uh, brought in this highly, highly important, uh, these concepts around the feminine. And uh, so just speak to that a little bit uh, so that we can really understand the core of which you're giving um, a path that we should really think about related to what we are doing and how we are uh, going about, even thinking about making changes to stem what is going on right now. Um, thank you for that, Raghu, because you actually really did encapsulate the heart of the book in in a very clear way, which um, which I appreciate. And and you're right, actually, underpinning everything I just said as an opening remarks is um, the acknowledgement um, and the and the. And the devastation, really, of the loss, and I'm not talking about gender so much, because the feminine is is within all of us, um, and it's like the depth, really, of 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 soul. The soul, I see, this feminine um, is represented as the depth of uh, soul, and the loss of that. And what I mean by that is that. Um, feeling um, not so much soul and sometimes we we use it as a in a religious metaphor but to understand that 
at the depth of our being, there's a deep interwovenness within all of life. Um, and where we cease to see um, the world and people and living beings and the earth itself as an object to us, um, that we're free to exploit or plunder or, or feel has no sentiency or sacredness. And the, the, um, the, the reclamation of the feminine really is the reclamation of this deep sense of um, installment of all of life um, and, and therefore the sacredness of all of life um, and that, it's, that life isn't uh, and other beings and the earth isn't an object and we have no right to, to plunder this earth in the way that we're doing and to keep extracting and decimating um, and uh, other beings and sacrificing those that we think are less important to our agendas. Um, and, and this comes out of a, a mental attitude um, and that's supported to some degree by patriarchal, uh, the, the patriarchy of the last few thousand millennia, which is expressed through all of the Axel Age religions of which Buddhism is one and, and all of them, primary religions are, are also where the sacred was began, began to be seen as apart from um, the materiality of, of life, you know, that the earth and the body and sexuality and all of these um, aspects of, of, of embodiment that we live with, with all the time were seen as lesser and um, were desold, if you like, as, uh, from the sacred. Um, and therefore, um, and in that sort of ripping out of that feeling of being in a web of life, which we felt in the, at some very deep place where in the very early, like indigenous people and early humans felt that, the sense of being very deeply interconnected, interwoven and having a place and belonging in life when, with the loss of all of that. And when the sort of focus of spirituality became some transcendent ideal that was sort of disembodied almost, um, there's been this sort of, um, I think partly from that wound um, and partly from the complex feelings from that wound, that trauma of that wound, that ripping away, um, there's this sort of great sense of um, maybe, I don't know, that's what I explore in the book is, is perhaps rage or or, or lack of um, feeling with uh, the earth and life itself, or or insensitivity, um, violence. You know, there's so many things that come out of this loss of the sacred, this loss of the deep feminine, mm. um, and and there has the journey therefore has to be both the reclamation of this this loss and the reclamation of the feminine within within insensitivity, receptivity and intimacy with life within all of us and at the same time the healing of the masculine within all of us um, of that which has been um, brutalised because in some ways the masculine also has, has been brutalised and shaped into a distorted form um, where we now see this sort of this, this uh, emergence of a power that dominates uh, through political and, and corporate um, and the oligarchy that we have now. It's like the extremity of a patriarchy and a dominant 
consciousness um, that feels that its relationship to everything else is one of 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 control mm. based on fear. Yeah, and, and as you say, feminine as central to awakening is central to awakening, and uh, not solely as gender, as you just said, but. Uh, something that lives within each of us. And I think that that's a very uh, important aspect of, of spirituality in, ge- in general. The feminine energy is essential because of its natural receptivity. And I'm reading from the book, inclusivity and empathy, the feminine archetype of kind and careful nurturing that cares for the earth is so important now. But Gee whiz, it's overwhelming. The aggression is overwhelming these days. And uh, that's why when I when I read uh, the book, and, uh, I just felt, oh, my God, there's just nobody's talking about this right now. Nobody is even addressing that reality. And then you get somebody and I'm I'm, you know, just moving off subject for a second, but it just occurs to me and Hillary Clinton, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about her quite a lot today, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, You know, and all of this, everything that you're talking about and and a lot of the darkness that is going on in this world related to the environment and related to the war and terrorism and disparity of income and all of these things, which are really coming to a, uh, a gigantic uh, denouement, shall we say. Yeah. And then you see somebody like her and you go, okay, well, here's some hope where we have a woman who can, who can provide what we're, what it is that you're talking about here. And yet it seems to be that part of who she is, is so diminished. I don't get that from her, you know, no, no, I no. get from her the power and the aggressiveness and the ability to get stuff done is the emphasis, but but not in the uh, the real feminine. And and probably she's being told, stay away from anything like that because yeah. uh, that is just you're going to get the opposite reaction. So uh, I I think that we just don't have archetypes. To, exactly. to to really share and and one of them um, that in the east we do and uh, one of them is the depiction of uh, of Aloki Teshvara, which is the uh, as you say the perfect embodiment uh, of empowered uh, a balance uh, talk about that talk about that uh, deity as a as a real example that we could share and I just wonder how the hell we can share it outside of the ism of Buddhism. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's, you've just said so much. And um, f- firstly, I think what comes to my mind is is how, um, and I will go talk to about Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin, but firstly what comes to my mind is that how the feminine women have to become uh, masculine to compete mm. on, and in some ways become even more hard. And um, I mean, what Hillary Clinton's had to to go through is, you know, to, to get to the point that she is, is, you know, she has to have a skin like a, well, 
you know, like a rhinoceros. But um, but I also, you know, one does have to wonder, and I think it is important to engage politically, absolutely, but will these changes that we really need come from political systems? I mean, that's what I'm wondering right now. Yeah. Or, or in, ter- in how they're held anyway with, um, you know, with one person sort of these, these this sort of, it's part of the patriarchy and hierarchy that you have, this sort of pyramid and then one person, these few people debating, um, you know, where, where the country should go, what should happen. And, and for me, it just feels the whole system should be in question, not so much the individuals, <laughs> but that's a big yeah. subject. And I know we don't want to go there right now. You're asking about Avalokiteshvara and this uh, Avalokiteshvara is really a representation of our deepest heart, Guan Yin, it's the Bodhisattva in Buddhist metaphor, which actually grew out of the uh, I- Indian um, mythology um, that predated um, Buddhism. But uh, it's, uh, it represents um, the depth of wisdom, seeing precisely into the nature of profound emptiness and therefore profound fullness and and interconnectedness and intimacy of all things and because of that there is the depth of compassion it means that this heart is both both um both uh deeply um you can't quantify the fundamental consciousness pure consciousness which is what we another way of talking about heart you can't quantify that in any particular way shape form in time um it's immeasurable it's unmoving it's ever present and then when realized you realize that it's profound we say it's empty it's only empty because it's because nothing outside of it so it's full everything is within this heart and when we understand within this consciousness, there's no ultimate separation. The separations come through designation of thinking and perception. And so when that collapses, then when it's inducted into reality, realizing that actually all beings, all things are part of our own oneness together here. Um, and that realization is is just changes the whole picture because then why would you trash what is a part of yourself? Why would yeah. you do that? Why would you kill another when you're killing a part of yourself? You wouldn't. And so that's the realization we need to really awaken into that realization and that activity or the practice of Guan Yin or Avadakiteshvara to arrive into that understanding is through in-depth listening which is a meditative practice, to listen beyond and beneath all the perceptions, all the views, all the judgments, until you hear your heart, hears the the heart of all beings. You you hear the sound of all beings within your own presence, and you're listening from a place of compassion. So that's the, the practice of that. But, you know, talking about masculine and feminine, I've been wondering about that, whether that's a bit problematic because people get so, I mean, it is important to name these territories because of the imbalance and the patriarchy, etc. But people get then so caught up, like you're talking about Hillary Clinton, um, and we think oh, she's a woman, but, you know, what does that really mean? Is she displaying those those qualities of, of femininity? Or, we, or, is she, or is it sort of... You know, one's just looking at gender. Mm. Um, so I'm wondering, I'm beginning to wonder whether one should be talking about right and left hemispheres of yeah. the brain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, to sort of de-gender the discussion. Yeah. 
um, because because you look at the the dominance of the 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 the, um, the left brain with its sort of naming and categorizing and its um, sense of being in time and logic and rationale, all of which we rely on heavily, and all of which is a very powerful um, shaping of our culture. But then you know you go to the right brain. It's uh, more intuitive, it's more connected, it's timeless, it's more um, instinctual in a way, more uh, creative. So so I, I'm wondering if there's other metaphors that we can talk into as well as and to complement the masculine-feminine metaphor yeah. so that people, people don't get so stuck on the gender aspect. Yeah. And even further to this part of the conversation uh, in the book, you say the power of the feminine is in her receptive formlessness, which she exactly. trusts as a natural source of intuitive truth, which is just what you were talking about. And also, because she has been shrouded for centuries in patriarchal conditioning, particularly within a masculine paradigm, she doesn't trust her deepest knowing. And that, again, just as you just said, let's forget about gender. Let's talk about that in each one of us, that we yes. have, we are not trusting our deepest knowing. And uh, that just occurs to me as, as a, wow, a big wow. Huh? It is a big wow because, you know, there are other ways of knowing than knowing through um, logic and rationale and um, linear designation and you know we have we have um deified the rationale we have deified science going into the objective world and sort of um to the point of crashing particles together to try and really explode um what is the inside of matter you know so like torturing nature to find out the building blocks of matter but i don't think it's the the right well maybe it's that direction is taking us back into consciousness because i think there's a whole other way of knowing that's very intimate and and it is the way of unknowing of stripping away all the things that we think we know and then going into that deep listening and presence um, and receptivity and that way of knowing starts to connect us into this intimacy experience the intimacy with all life it's not outside of this one consciousness you know and what is known and the knowing starts to to merge and that's that's a very wow kind of yeah. <laughs> you know okay. explodes everything mm. um so um how can we um you know do that mm. yeah. <laughs> on a more collective i mean we do that individually we've been doing that on our meditation cushions but you know how can we translate that out mm. um and sometimes uh, i think also mm. even on our meditation cushions we get and you talk about this in the book a little uh, it extends to self-interest, our self-interest about ourselves becoming free and leaving out the uh, compassion part and thinking about somebody aside from yourself. And uh, so I, I th here's the one ingredient, just to move this to another area. Not really, uh, but... You tell a story in this book, and I, I, to me it's a darshan, and it's when you went to the Mahabodhi temple in Bodh Gaya, and 
and it relates to all your perceptions of, of the Buddha. And many people, we all have had this perception of the Buddha, these perceptions of the Buddha. And do you, you remember the story? I'd love for you to tell it. Yes, 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 yes. Um, well, you know, I, I trained in a very um, Thai forest school of Ajahn Chah, and it was it's quite a sort of, what's the word? It's a warrior school. And I talk about that, the shift from the warrior metaphor to the lover, but it was a very warrior school, and there was a sense of sternness, really, and discipline and renunciation and letting go and the Vinaya that the Buddha left and and these texts, these very old texts, incredible texts that are recorded from the Buddha's uh, teaching, but they're very dry, extreme, extremely dry. And and the Buddha often, I mean, he actually has humor and he does sort of, you know, come over um, sometimes in that mode, but more often he it, there's a certain sternness. And so I suppose my internalized sense of the Buddha, and it was my own projection, um, was probably like a bit of like a stern father figure that one felt would probably be going tut tut <laughs> at your thoughts, or you know, not good enough, or you know, there was the, and these and these sort of idealized um, saints from the you know that uh, you know this master would sit and wouldn't move for a week, or this one would be you know fasting, or this. So I had all these internalized metaphors of, of what spiritual life was, and and some of them not that conscious. But at that moment when I went to Budgaya, that was in 1992, with my partner Kitty Oh no, no, sorry, that wasn't. That was earlier. It was earlier when I was a a nun, I think, or was it was anyway. Doesn't matter. It, the, the the point was when I went into the Bodhi uh, the, the the central inner shrine of the Mahabodhi temple. It's chaotic in there. People are sort of throwing flowers and money and incense at the big Buddha statue, and there's people doing chants and all sorts of things are going on there. And and um, I felt very sort of somewhat agitated by this whole. I had this idea that there should be sort of more reverence, and it and it was actually you know it wasn't that it's India, you know it's all over the place. Um, but at a certain point, um, I found my my mind just opening up. I think I bowed. Um, some some point it was just bowing, and in my mind just sort of somehow just this shift happened, and it was like something cracked open, and I experienced um, this sense of tremendous. First of all, a sense of being accepted. It was a, a very profound feeling, but then what I felt in that is sense of acceptance. And it didn't feel like it came from my own psychodynamic material. It really felt like some darshan, as you say. I felt this tremendous sense of love. And it was uh, an important moment for me because I understood that the Buddha, what I really was, sort of the transmission that was, was this tremendous love that the Buddha had for uh, for me, uh, you know, <laughs> sounds a bit sort of, but for all humanity, I just felt like this. What his 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 journey and his teaching and his um and you know forty years of turning the wheel of the Dharma profoundly moved, He moved from a place of love, and and that that was really helpful to feel because then it dissolved all those sort of rather stern images that I had internalized and then projected onto myself. And it's really important that we we come to this love, you know, that's, that this journey of human life is not about attaining great feats of enlightenment or becoming conquering everything 
and how we internalize that and project that onto the spiritual life or conquering this earth. We have to learn to love, you know, we have to learn this spiritual life has to bring us in this very human way, in this very human potential to the place where we can truly uh, accept, uh, you know, uh, in a very deep way. So, so this is something that I would like to aspire to. Um, yeah. Because it's not easy. It's not easy, is it? It's not easy, you know, especially in this furnace that we're now in when one can so quickly move into hatred and judging. And I get so upset about, you know, the, um, the travesty that's happening on our planet and the psychopathic mindset that's generating it. But we're all woven into this <laughs> same reality. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah that's it's very difficult with uh, i we talk about this uh on the podcast all the time with different people i just uh, the other day went through this with somebody and and we're always confronting that same issue of of anger of judgment of of hate yes. we're doing what it is that we're you know we're we're fighting back against so i think the the antidote is this story is this getting to this place of of love not just practicing so that we can become free it's practicing so that we can share that that love and be able then to really uh you call it deep listening and i know that's a buddhist practice uh, so that deep listening and that intuitive knowing is not possible in my mind without that love um yeah. uh, this for me was first experienced the unconditional love as you know because we talked about it before and it was with ne- neem karoli baba when ramdas and, and a number of us went back to india with him the second time and uh and i'll tell you uh he his emphasis on the feminine was so so strong wow uh he he would say to us over and over and over Every woman that you see, you should love as you love your mother and your sister. He would, he would, yeah. in the most simplistic terms, yet they were so profound in those moments. Yeah. But they turned us inside in a way that we hadn't been turned inside to realize that, and then continued and, um, to realize that, or at least work on that. It's a little too. Um, aggrandizing to say we realized that we were just kids and we didn't realize it but but it gave us a path to work on and so in reading these uh, in reading your book and reading uh, about and how you codify the feminine within each of us it uh, it really brought me back to that uh, to that place it was just uh, it's just been absolutely wonderful um i yes. now there's there's some tough stuff in this book. I mean, you have a chapter called When the Devil Shows Up, which is basically, for me, the prolia, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. And it's the time is right for transformation and waking up that has the potential to create a new world. And uh, obviously, it, it, when you have indi- individual suffering, those are the times at which we can wake up individually. And now we have this gigantic collective suffering and yeah. uh it, it is uh it is a a, a pretty huge wake-up call and uh, and many people of course are very concerned and, and certainly thinking about it 
And um, one of the things that I loved uh, was um, a chapter called Call of the Earth. And you talk about the indigenous people and what they have to offer us. And uh, and you talk about uh, the uh, the Keggy message and, and uh, yeah. Aluna. Can you talk about that? And uh, and I know that's it's, there's a doc called Aluna, which uh, I think uh, I have. I would love to see, and I, I would suggest it to everybody. Uh, the way that, uh, but but tell us a little bit more about it and the keggy and that message. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and firstly, thank you for mentioning Maharaji. Um, it's, it's wonderful to be connected um, with that tremendous, profound love because I do think we need examples to hold that light. Um, and and I was also thinking, I was talking to you from South Africa, where I work a lot and live. Um, a lot of the time, and I was thinking of Mr. Mandela as exemplifying that same, demonstrating that love um, through the fire of his journey and the journey here that happened. Um, in terms of, um, yeah, I, I think we, I think we have. Uh, in terms of the Kogi message, um, that was something I came across when I very. Earlier on, maybe uh, 1991, when I first heard about them and their training and their coming out, they 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 live in uh, um, which South American country? Sorry, I should know this. I wrote about it, but anyway, mm-hmm. they came out to. They live a pre-Columbian lifestyle. That means like before the colonization that happened over the last five, 600 years across the globe at the hands of primarily Europeans um, and decimated many of the First Nation peoples in uh, here in Africa, the, the Khoisan or the, the, in South America, in Australia, uh, and of course in America. Um, and this terrible, terrible trauma that, that happened against the, the peoples that had they knew about, they, they lived and knew this deep, deep relationship um, within the earth. They were in the web of life. And they also uh, had a sense of relationship not only with the earth, but a cosmological relationship with the skies, the heavens, the animals. Everything was a speaking, it's a speaking world. That means everything is sacred, everything is alive, everything is in a communication. Um, and, And in that process, there's great revelation and depth of opening and awareness. So it's a whole reality and there's a whole sort of way of being in that reality that, um, that, um, that gives great meaning um, and great placement and great belonging. All of that was with the, the outward decimation of the First Nation people. We decimated that within ourselves, including mm. the sense of reverence for nature and wildness and not really that nature wasn't really wild. It's only wild to us as... It was actually very intimate for the First Nation peoples. The Kogis have come out. They, they, I think in Colombia. Um, forgive me, it's a bit late at night, and my brain's a bit fried today. But um, they came. They came out of their their lifestyle to give this message to humanity, saying, "You haven't got long." This is in 1991. You, you know, they call this is your big brother talking to the little brother, saying. You know, you're messing this up, and this, you know, you, you, this is going really wrong. So then they've come out now, just recently, I think last year, and and come out now with another message, 
um, to to you know to pretty similar, but in that message and what I record in the book is, is quite interesting. Again, saying that everything is speaking to everything else. So when you destroy, when you mine a piece of land, you don't understand that you're completely um, interrupting the energy flow, say of. Um, the relationship between the forest and the ocean and that land you're, you've mined and destroyed. And it, it's, it damages this, this sort of um, connection within nature of which we're a part. So every piece of nature that we damage, we're damaging our own psyche as well. And, it, and they're saying that actually for this evolutionary process that, that the human mind is a part of it and, and we're needed as a conduit to help this evolutionary process unfold itself. Hmm. But we can we do that better when we're actually tuned in and respectful and honoring of the sacredness of this evolutionary process manifested through nature and matter. We're a part of this journey. We've removed ourselves from it as an observer and we feel arrogant. We feel we're above this and and I think what we need to do is we need to actually be very humble in relationship to First Nation people, acknowledge a terrible decimation and, and, and seek their guidance because these are peoples that uh, never forgot. They never forgot their profound relationship with the mother. They never did. We did. Yeah. Um, but they, they've carried that and preserved that um, and they're marginalised and been waiting, some of them, waiting for us to wake up enough. And this is the moment when we say, you know, please lead us because we clearly um, shouldn't be leading (laughs) at this moment. Clearly, clearly. And they say, uh, a quote here is that this energy is the source of all life and intelligence and is also the mind inside nature. That's quite something. The mind inside nature that is thinking, self-aware, and very much alive. Exactly. That's uh, what a great quote. So this chapter, Call of the Earth, uh, and I just thought to myself, that's versus our call to technology, separation, and fear. (laughs) That's what seems to be our call. I mean, just... I mean, technology yeah. is so fantastic. Here we are, we're doing this podcast. You're in South Africa and I'm in the eastern seaboard of the United States. <laughs> and uh, we're able to do this. And then we're able to share this worldwide through the auspices of, of digital technology. How beautiful. And at the same yeah. time, there's a way in which we do, we use this technology as an isolation device. And mm. that is uh, brings many, many, many difficulties. So it's it really is a, a mixed bag. Um, mm. There's something else here that uh, I, I've got to get in uh, because uh, again, it's tremendously important. It's the exchange that you write about between Buddha and the Brahma, I guess the Brahmana god uh, Sampati. Um, yeah, it's it's tremendously important. Um, can talk about it a little bit, and I, I have uh, some comment about it, but I want to hear from you first. Yeah, this is a moment when Brahma Sahampati, is a god from the Brahma realm, um, comes down. The Buddha's about he's he's awakened. He's seen, uh, realized uh, what's called the Amata Dharma, the deathless Dharma. 
he's seen, he's sort of cracked open the nugget, really. He's seen um, the co-arising um, of what gives rise to this um, suffering uh, sense of separate self that caught in its own delusions. And he's sort of resolved, he's resolved this massive quest of what is it that doesn't die. And he realizes there's a deathless element. He's in it's profoundly blissful and peaceful. So he's done this great journey. Um, and, and then he, and then he, and then he thinks it's too subtle to teach, you know, he's, it's too difficult. This world is caught in the veil of illusion and delusion and fear and greed and hatred and all the things we're talking about. And he's about to give up. Um, and at that point, you know, the David realm, the angelic kingdom who appear a lot in the Buddha suttas, um, and, and as in first, as we're just talking First Nation reality and as in older culture, Celtic cultures and things like that, they, this is a, a real part of the cosmological uh, part of our of the fullness of reality, that there are subtle beings that interact with this plane. So anyway, they're, they're cheering on the Buddha and this is great, but then they suddenly see he's about to give up and they can't let him not um, share what he's uh, discovered. This would be a massive loss, and they, they know this. So Brahma, Sahampati, he comes from the Brahma realm, which represents a sort of bringing the creation, bringing into form. Mm. You know, this is you're not you're awakening, but the fullness of awakening is to bring your message into form. You can see it, but to learn to embody it and um, demonstrate it in the world. This is then the fully awakened Buddha. So Brahma Sahampati appears uh, before the Buddha and uh, says, you know, please, um, there are those with a little dust in their eye, and for want of not hearing the Dharma, they, they will not have the opportunity to awaken. Please go forth and turn the wheel of the Dharma. So this is a symbol, really. It's a symbol of compassion that the Buddha feels, you know, or it's, a, it's a, also um, a real intervention of the divine, which I actually think is something we we need to really also open to, that um, we need this, uh, we have to understand that this, with all our technology, it's not going to solve it really. We, I think we think, still think that this human mind on the rational plane is, is going to solve this unbelievable crisis that we've created that we're going to solve it from the same place from where we created it from, this extreme rational control of, of the material realm, even though in the subtle realms of technology. But if there isn't this depth that we're talking about, infused by the sacred, infused by wisdom, infused by this quality of what we might call divine humility, then you know we, we're not going to really um, heal and, and survive. So this the divine is is this uh, is the unknown. It's the unexpected. It's the moment when you don't you don't know what's going, but you just open in a prayerful way, and that's then allows something else, an intuitive like a Maharaji love uh, or an Einstein, a radical shift of quantum understanding. It's that kind of space because you're tuning into the deepest intelligence that allows for shifts to happen. And so this is an important archetypal moment in the Buddha's life. Without that moment, we wouldn't have had, you know, this extraordinary gift of the Buddha and his um, ex exquisite teaching. The sharing. The we sharing, have that exactly. Sharing. And uh, you say the wheel of the Dharma, 
must be turned out of compassion for living beings and to evolve the world. Uh, and that to me is the most central statement of this whole book. Ah. Uh, just okay. because without that, if we are not doing that, what purpose do we have to be on this planet? Uh -huh. This sharing, sharing our compassion, sharing our loves, sharing our wisdom, whatever it is, uh, it stemmed from this um, this story. That's why I love this story of, of, of the um, Buddha's impulse to do that. Um, yeah, and yeah, you're, you frame that beautifully. That's absolutely right. There's um, I, we're getting close to the end of sure. the podcast, but uh, but there's something here that I. I just want to ask you about because um, I'm not completely clear about it. And um, it's about the pitfall of it. enlightenment. Is, is the focus on the goal of awakening rather than maturing awakening in daily life? Now, we've touched on this a little bit in terms of not, and you do in your book uh, quite a bit, we cannot be focused on our personal um, freedom without being focused on, uh, as the Bodhisattva vow, on freedom for everyone. But in this particular thing, awakening, right, the mature awakening in daily life, just uh, expand on that, would you? Yeah. Um, well, I think it is, uh, I think the, the, I think when many of us started off on this journey, we had perhaps um, very profound openings. We talked in the last podcast about the, you know, some of that was evoked through the use of um, psychotropic plants yeah. or through maybe various other means. One has a, a very sudden or deep opening or one's inspired by the ideal of enlightenment um, but what happens is then one holds an ideal or holds a memory or um, and it sort of obscures the the ordinariness of so-called ordinariness of daily life and we can start to feel everything else that's not un, you know presenting in this sort of enlightened metaphor that we that we have an ideal about isn't it and in that process we actually miss the actual, um, teaching in each moment the dharma is is always here and now in everything everything is teaching us all the time you know the mundane the headache the conflict the struggle it's all part of the journey it's all part of our awakening so i think at some point one has to go through a period of disillusionment and maybe this time as i'm saying this i'm thinking maybe you know this also has to happen i think on a global scale disillusionment with our structures, you know, with the political, religious, and so on, that that are infused with unrealistic expectation and idealism, um, and then we have to somehow return to the to to to. It's not that we shouldn't hold an ideal or, or have a guiding light, but that has to relate and inform the actuality of the journey. And it's the journey that we undertake that is the, the that it actually is the, then the maturing of awakening and integration of awakening in all aspects of our life. And that is, a, that's a big deal. You know, you, you can have, I mean, in the Buddhist map of awakening, you have very profound awakenings. Um, but, 
you might not have even begun to purify greed, hatred, you know, greed and delusion and aversion. You know, so so then there's still work to do. <laughs> mm. um, and then and when you realize that, then then actually everything becomes part of the awakening. And so that when the when one of the fruits of an awakened heart is to be in touch with the world, but not shaken and overwhelmed by that world, mm. but according to the unshakable deliverance of heart. Well, you know, that heart is in touch with the world. We're not we're not denying, we're not trying to hide away, our enlightenment isn't hiding away, um, but we're engaged, but we allow ourselves to feel and be with what's happening, but we're not overwhelmed and, and shaken up. We see, see it for what it is, but are able to fully respond from a place of authenticity and empowerment and, and wisdom and compassion. But, you know, so, so when we hold the journey like that, it allows us to live our human life uh, more, uh, and respect every part of it. Yeah. And here's another, uh, my final quote here from the book, where you talk about the, and, and of course this is a directly referential to what you just said, we talk about uh, the collective dark night of the soul that transcends all boundaries. And I don't think people need to look very far to see the truth of that, uh, unfortunately. But fortunately, because oh. yet we are awakening into knowing a deeper truth of being the one, being the one as many. You could have said of seeing the one as many but being the one and, and this is uh, so directly um, a reference from our good friend ramdas who talks yes. of nothing these days but being love being the one and recognizing yourself in absolutely everything from the he calls it from the trees to the the, the the rug and he has a whole story about this horrible dirty rug i love the rug you know in a, uh, in a hotel uh, ballroom and people go you love uh, the rug more than you love me <laughs> you know it's, it's this whole funny thing and he uh but he yeah. talks about yes the manifestation of the many is uh, only possible through realizing the one and uh and this is so beautifully said it's a wonderful book Wonderful book. Mm. Well, thank thank you so much, Raghu, and and that's um, that's a beautiful place to to pause. Um, uh, may it be so for you and for all of and for me, for all of us. May may we flower into that realization. Yes, yes. So time to stand up. It's mm. a real call to action, and uh, it's uh, it has so much profundity uh, of ideas and. Uh, there are some tough things in here, too. I mean, I got caught. Let me tell you, I got caught by that. I couldn't, I'll be honest, I could not read it. It was the chapter on uh, Animal Holocaust. And I guess I'm, I mean, not that I'm different than anybody. Uh, you know, I've got a bunch of dogs here right now. And I've always yeah. been an animal lover in my whole life. And yeah. uh, that was a tough read. Yeah. <laughs> that was a tough yeah, one. That's, but that's it's the true. most haunting piece for me, to tell you the truth. I it bet. I me. can't even mm. imagine you writing that. So, um, but there's hope, and that hope uh, 
is uh, certainly exemplified in so many different ways and so many different archetypes and certainly the the feminine archetype uh, being the most important one and something that we can all uh, bring into our own lives because that's where it starts it's from each of oh. our hearts to mm -hmm. the next heart to the next heart to the next heart so um you can um uh, give us a little bit of, of uh, website and information how people can be in touch with you, can get with uh, your books and teachings and so on. Um, well, we, we have a website which is our, our little hermitage in South Africa, and through there you can write to to us and I'll get sent on to me. Um, it's dharmagiri.org. Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A-Giri, G-I-R-I, that's one word. Giri is mountain, Sanskrit, dharmagiri.org. Hmm. And the book, of course, is available uh, everywhere. Go to Amazon. And uh, as we we say whenever we're talking about people's books and so on, you go to Amazon and uh Buy that book through our MindPod network link, everybody. And you already know because I go on about this every week. It helps support what we're doing. and uh, But uh, on its own merits, time to stand up. So just go ahead and get that and get it on any of your devices as well. I got it on my iPad. So thank you so much for this. Oh, thank you. I always so enjoy being oh. with you. And uh, wow. last time you were here in the states, so it seemed like yes. you were you were much closer. And now that you're in South Africa, it's like wow, this is uh, amazing. <laughs> it's like you're sitting in the in the front room. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, just our our living room, God's living room. All right, all the best to you and um, everybody. Go to mindpodnetwork.com and go to Mind Rolling, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much.